The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into the operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of different educational programming that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. The topic of today's episode is Giuseppe Verdi's last opera, Falstaff, and his third opera to be adapted from a Shakespeare play, this time drawn from The Merry Wives of Windsor. So we are continuing our theme of Shakespearean opera over the course of the summer. This is a Talking About Opera lecture presented to us by Bridget Paolucci, and as we did with an episode a few weeks ago, we have actually split this episode into two parts to ensure that the length of each part is manageable without cutting out all the great content that was part of the original recording. So today we are going to release part one, and that covers some of the historical background as well as an exploration of act one. And then tomorrow we will release part two, picking up right where the first part left off, diving into act two and act three of the opera. If you're listening to this episode far in the future, then you can already access both parts immediately one after the other in our episode feed. We hope you'll like this format and we would love to hear any feedback that you have, so you can send us your thoughts and your opinions by leaving us a review in iTunes or shooting us an email at lectures at operaed.org. So now, without any further delay, I give you Bridget Paolucci talking about Verdi's Falstaff. On June 12, 1891, Giuseppe Verdi wrote a letter in which he said, Big Belly is on the road that leads to madness. There are days when he doesn't budge, but sleeps and is in a bad mood. At other times, he shouts, runs, leaps, kicks up a fuss. I let him rage a bit, but if he continues, I'll put him in a muzzle and straitjacket. Big Belly was Verdi's pet name for the character of Falstaff. This is Bridget Paolucci speaking to you about Falstaff on behalf of the Metropolitan Opera Guild. Verdi was 77 years old when he wrote the letter I've just quoted. The recipient was Arrigo Boito, the poet, journalist, and composer who had written the libretto for Verdi's tragic masterpiece, Otello. After Otello, Verdi announced his retirement, but Boito knew that Verdi idolized Shakespeare and that he had announced his retirement before, so he surprised Verdi with an outline for the proposed libretto of Falstaff. The plot was taken from Shakespeare's Merry Wives of Windsor, but the character of Falstaff was drawn from two of the Bard's historical plays, King Henry IV, Part I, and Part II. Verdi thought that the outline was excellent, but hesitated to take on the project because of his advanced age, saying that if he didn't succeed in finishing the music, then Boito's efforts would have been in vain. He was also concerned that if Boito took on the Falstaff libretto, he would neglect his own opera, Nerone, an opera, by the way, that Boito still had not completed at the time of his death in 1918. Boito, who was 30 years younger than Verdi, refused to be dissuaded. The fact is that I never think of your age when I'm speaking to you or writing to you or working for you, he wrote to Verdi. I don't think it would tire you to write a comic opera. Tragedy makes the person who writes it genuinely suffer, but the laughter of comedy exhilarates the mind and body. The only way to end your career better than with Otello 
is to end it triumphantly with Falstaff. Verdi eventually agreed to start work on the opera. As evidenced in the letter I read earlier, he relished the process and developed a real affection for the main character, whom he referred to in his letters as Il Pancione, the Big Belly. Yet he insisted to Boito that work proceed in absolute secrecy, underlining the word secrecy three times. Verdi completed the score of Falstaff in December 1892. The opening was set at La Scala, with the composer supervising the long, arduous rehearsals himself. Despite his age, he never tired. In fact, he seemed exhilarated by the process. The world premiere of Falstaff took place on February 9, 1893. Verdi was then 79 years old. For Italy, it was a national event. In the music world, a triumph for the composer and the librettist. Falstaff has always been a favorite with musicians, yet it has never been as popular with the general public, even in Verdi's time. Why? Well, the music is more subtle, more intricate, full of nuance, and less easily accessible than Verdi's other operas. Although there are arias, duets, and ensembles, Falstaff marks a break from traditional operatic forms. Music and text are absolutely fused throughout. In fact, most of the opera is conversational in feeling. Within the space of a single sentence, there can be a staccato passage and a burst of melody, depending on the meaning of the words, each element flowing into the next in a seamless, continual, finely detailed musical line. At first hearing, the opera doesn't seem to be melodic, but actually there's a wealth of warm, spontaneous melody throughout. Verdi darts from one lyrical gem to another. Melodies gleam for just a moment, much like sunlight on a waterfall of sound, bright, and fleeting. The pace of the opera is swift, the music mercurial, moving with the speed and naturalness of spoken comedy, suffused with a spirit of youth and joy. Verdi wrote Falstaff for a huge orchestra, and yet the orchestra is used as delicately and transparently as a chamber music ensemble. The orchestra comments and laughs throughout. That laughter is combined with tenderness and wisdom in an opera that's touching in its humanity. Falstaff takes place in Windsor, England during the 15th century. Each of the three acts is divided into two scenes. I'll outline the plot of each scene briefly before analyzing the musical and dramatic details. The first scene of Act One is set in a room in the Garter Inn. The portly knight, Sir John Falstaff, is there with his cronies, Bardolph and Pistol. Dr. Caius, a physician, rushes in, accusing Falstaff of abusing Caius' servants and house. Falstaff is totally unsympathetic. After Caius storms out of the tavern, Falstaff tells his cronies that he needs money to pay the innkeeper's bill. He has devised a plan. He has written love letters to Alice Ford and Meg Page, the wives of two wealthy local burghers. Since the women hold the purse strings in their respective families, he hopes to make a profitable liaison with each of them. Bardolph and Pistol refuse to deliver the letters, citing their sense of honor. Falstaff sends a page to deliver them instead, then discourses on the nature of honor and chases his cronies out the door. There's no prelude. The opera begins with a rambunctious theme consisting of a brash chord followed by mischievous rhythmic figures, all played quickly. This theme, repeated throughout the opening scene, not only denotes the fury of Dr. Caius, but also establishes the boisterous atmosphere of the tavern scene and the spirit of fun that pervades the opera. 
The curtain goes up almost immediately as Caius enters and accuses Falstaff of mistreating his servants, beating his mare, and breaking into his house. Ignoring him, Falstaff calls to the waiter for another bottle of sherry. Caius becomes almost hysterical as he demands an answer. Calmly, the unflappable Falstaff replies, I did that, and I did it on purpose. When he sings those words, O fatto ciò che ha detto, lo fatto apposta, the strings gradually rise over a vast three-octave expanse, seeming to measure Falstaff's bulk. In this recording, Geraint Evans is Falstaff, John Lanigan, Dr. Caius. Sir George Schulte conducts the RCA Italiana Opera Orchestra. And now, the opening of Falstaff. <laughs> Caius adds that Bardolph and Pistol got him drunk and robbed him. Then he leaves in a huff. Falstaff scolds his cohorts, but not on moral grounds. He tells them that his art lies in this maxim, to steal with taste and at the right time. The innkeeper brings Falstaff a bill for the huge quantity of food and drink that he has consumed. Falstaff examines the bill, then scolds Bardolph and Pistol, claiming that they cost him too much. As we resume listening, Falstaff calls for more wine over the raucous sound of the brass. Then he contemplates how horrible it would be if he were thin. He would no longer be himself, and no one would love him. His words are accompanied by the piccolo and cello playing in unison, with a vast four-octave space between them. In a passage bloated with self-importance, Falstaff claims that there are a thousand tongues in his belly, all pronouncing his name. Bardolph and Pistol salute him in music befitting an emperor. Falstaff immenso, enorme Falstaff. The music swells, seeming to fill Sir John's enormous frame as he proclaims, Questo è il mio regno. This is my kingdom, I'll expand it. And the others cry out, immenso Falstaff. In this hymn to his size, the orchestra provides an imposing accompaniment that would be appropriate for the most triumphant of triumphal scenes, all, of course, in a mock serious manner. The mood changes instantly, from pompous to gleeful, as Falstaff reveals his plot to seduce the merry wives of Windsor. The orchestra seems to sneak in and out as Falstaff and his cronies share what they know about the Fords and their money. But when Falstaff describes Alice Ford, the orchestra shifts to a limpid melody that reflects her grace and femininity, while Falstaff sings of her beauty in wisps of sound that resemble sighs. The excerpt you'll hear next is characteristic of the entire opera. The music moves swiftly and subtly from mood to mood, from thought to thought, with the facility of spoken comedy. It's concise and fluid despite the number of thoughts it expresses and the variety of moods it depicts. 
the meaning of each segment is captured precisely and economically. From Falstaff's raucous demand for more wine, to the mock hymn to his size, to his furtive telling of the plot to seduce the women, and finally, the lyrical passage in which he rhapsodizes over Alice. As you'll hear, that lyricism doesn't last any longer than the momentary thought that prompts it. Falstaff goes on to describe Meg Page, but he's rebuffed by Bardolph and Pistol, who refuse to deliver the letters because they claim to have a sense of honor. Falstaff calls for a page to hurry off with the letters. Then, indignantly, he cries out, Honore ladri, honor thieves. Trombones, bassoons, and lower strings echo the word thieves. His vocal line is loud and jagged as he rants and raves, saying that Bardolph and Pistol are filthy and ignominious. Then, unexpectedly, there's a touch of soft, sinuous melody as he tells them that when he has to dispense with honor, he hopes God isn't looking. The melody twists and turns as the roguish knight explains that he often seeks refuge in deceptions, evasions, half-truths. But it ends abruptly when Falstaff turns on Bardolph and Pistol again and insults them. What honor, Keonore, he asks three times in rapid succession. The orchestra punctuates his questions with offbeat chords, then brays with raucous trills. Falstaff poses a series of questions. Can honor fill your stomach? No. Can honor mend a broken leg? No. A foot? No. A finger? No. A hair? No. On this last question, the no is delayed a beat, creating a moment of purely musical wit. We begin as Falstaff cries out, Honor, thieves. I'll point out the series of questions just before he sings them. Oh, 
sempre noi possiamo star lì al nostro io stesso sì io io devo valor da un lato correti morti Dio e per necessità sia l'onore usare strada che mi ed equivoci e streggiar Orgeggiare e voi che lo si senti e collocchiata torta da gatto parlo e te ci si miazzi e mezzo scorta io sono tenore 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 che cancia che paia The series of questions begins No. Può l'onor rimettervi uno stinco? Non può. Né un piede? No. Né un dito? No. Né un cappello? No. Falstaff reiterates that he wants no part of honor, then seizes a broom and chases Bardolph and Pistol out of the room. Those brass trills are heard once again in the orchestra as the scene comes to a close. Although the honor monologue establishes the character of Falstaff in the opera, it's not in Shakespeare's Merry Wives of Windsor, but in Henry IV, Part I. After the king's call to arms during the Civil War, Prince Hal says to Falstaff, Thou owest God a death. Then Falstaff, left alone, ponders the subject of honor. He decides that it's merely a word, nothing but air, and he'll have no part of it. The character of Shakespeare's Falstaff is based on the historical Sir John Oldcastle, who lived from 1378 to 1417. He was an aristocrat by marriage and high sheriff of Herefordshire. Although valiant in war, he was condemned as a traitor and early in the reign of Henry V was executed. He became a legend, though hardly the great comic invention and life force that Shakespeare created in the Henry IV plays. Tradition has it that Queen Elizabeth I so enjoyed the character of Falstaff in the historical works that she requested a play showing Sir John in love. The Bard's response to that request was The Merry Wives of Windsor. In Merry Wives, however, Falstaff isn't in love but out of money. He's a pale character, a buffoon rather than the vivid, multifaceted knight of the historical plays. The Falstaff of Merry Wives wouldn't indulge in philosophizing about honor. Merry Wives isn't one of Shakespeare's better comedies. It's a sprawling play, written mostly in prose, except for the final scene in Windsor Park. Boito turned this rather ordinary comedy into a great one by reconstituting the Falstaff of the Henry IV plays within the framework of Merry Wives. But that was only the beginning. Boito tightened the play, gave it unity, eliminated some of the characters, reduced the number of episodes during which Falstaff is duped from three to two, reconstructed entire scenes, and added several encounters between Fenton and Anne, Nanetta in the opera. Boito also turned Shakespeare's prose into highly literate verse, often using the very sound of the words to communicate their meaning. 
The second scene of Act One is set in the garden of the Ford home. Mistress Meg Page and Mistress Quickly are greeted by Mistress Alice Ford and her daughter Nanetta. When Alice and Meg compare the letters they have received from Falstaff, they're insulted that he would dare propose an affair and with himself as a potential lover. With Quickly's help, they decide to teach him a lesson. The women withdraw as Ford arrives with Dr. Caius, Bardolph, Pistol, and Fenton, a young man who's in love with Nanetta. Since Bardolph and Pistol feel that Falstaff mistreated them, they tell Ford about the letters. The three of them and Dr. Caius swear revenge on the fat knight. As the men and women concoct separate plots, Fenton courts Nanetta, but Ford plans to have her marry Dr. Caius. The women decide to send quickly to the Garter Inn to invite Falstaff to meet with Alice Ford. The men decide that Bardolph and Pistol will go to the inn and introduce Ford, under an assumed name, to Falstaff. As the curtain rises, the atmosphere of the opera changes from a thoroughly masculine world to an utterly feminine one. The music is still brisk and staccato, but infinitely lighter in texture, never raucous or robust. The rippling melody of the orchestral introduction captures the chattiness of the women and their amusement at the letters they've received. As they enter, they greet one another warmly. Their vocal lines are naturalistic. Meg begins by simply saying Alice, Alice in the Italian. Alice greets her. Then Meg greets Nanetta, adding that she has come to share a laugh with them. And Alice welcomes quickly to the little gathering. The pace is swift, the conversation natural, the orchestra effervescent. In this recording, Ilva Ligabue sings Alice Ford, Giulietta Simeonato quickly, Mirella Freni Nanetta, and Rosalind Elias, Meg Page. Meg and Alice exchange letters and urge one another to read. Incredulous, they realize that the letters are identical. Once they're over the shock of receiving the same letters, however, they throw themselves into the spirit of Sir John's amorous words. As Alice reads, her vocal line soars in one of those lyrical outbursts that characterize this opera. The melody spins out as she reads, We'll be a pair united in a merry love that of a beautiful woman and a man of splendor. Verdi instructs the soprano to sing the last line of the letter as caricature, a line that reads, and your face will shine like a star in the immensity of space. The orchestra shimmers on the word risplenderà, will shine, and on the word immensita, immensity, an exaggerated trill clearly reflects Falstaff's size, and the women burst into musical laughter. Alice reads the signature, then Mistress quickly denounces Falstaff with a single word, mostro, monster, and brass chords provide forceful offbeat accents as the others follow suit. The women immediately begin to plan their vengeance on Falstaff, but they do so in a spirit of fun. They're ever graceful, lively, and sure of themselves, and the orchestra reflects their lightheartedness. We resume listening with the rapturous melody sung by Alice as she reads Falstaff's letter.
In a quartet, the women plot their strategy and then retreat as the five men enter. In a chaotic quintet, Bardolph and Pistol warned Ford about Falstaff's amorous pursuits, while simultaneously Ford expresses his exasperation, Caius his fury, and Fenton his amusement. The women re-enter. Everyone notices everyone else, and they all run off in different directions. All that is, except Nanetta and Fenton. These two are Verdi's most delightful young lovers. Their little duets weave in and out of the opera with remarkable fluidity, providing extended lyrical passages that temper the wit and the relentlessly fast pace of the opera. According to Julian Budden, author of The Operas of Verdi, it is in the music of the two lovers that we find that countermeasure of seriousness that no complete portrayal of the human condition, however merry the context, can do without. Not that their mood is serious, but rather their love for one another is, a love that's young, true, determined, and secretive. The series of encounters between Nanette and Fenton was Boito's idea. There's no parallel in the Shakespeare. In a letter to Verdi, the librettist wrote, this love between Nanetta and Fenton must come in frequent bouts. In all the scenes in which they take part, they will keep on kissing secretly, in corners, slyly, boldly, without letting themselves be discovered, with fresh little phrases and brief, very rapid little dialogues from the beginning to the end of the comedy. It will be a very lively, merry love, always disturbed and interrupted, and always ready to begin again. The first of their encounters takes place after the men and women go their separate ways. Nanetta and Fenton declare their love for one another in a sweet and tender melody. The vocal lines become more urgent as he asks for a kiss, and she refuses. Suddenly, the orchestral music changes to a few nervous spurts of sound as Nanetta warns that someone is approaching. Then comes a refrain that the lovers will sing each time they have to part. From a distance, Fenton says, Bocca baciata non perde ventura. A mouth that is kissed does not lose its allure. Nanetta replies, Anzi rinova, come fa la luna. In fact, it renews itself, as does the moon. Before Fenton starts the refrain, an oboe sounds a high A-flat, which seems to transport their love to another plane. Nanetta's response ends on that high A-flat, sustained, floating above muted strings that repeat the melody that the lovers shared earlier. They seem removed from everything around them, lifted from the prosaic everyday world of the other characters to their own luminous world. The sheen of the strings and the rapture of their vocal lines is a total contrast to what precedes and follows their brief encounter. Immediately after their refrain, the tempo picks up and the orchestra scurries as the women resume plotting against Falstaff. As you listen to the first Fenton Nanetta encounter, I'll point out the refrain to you. In this recording, the role of Fenton is sung by Alfredo Krauss.
The refrain begins. The women express their delight at the thought of humiliating Falstaff. We'll resume listening as Meg tells quickly to play her role well when she goes to visit Falstaff. And then the orchestra describes the women hurrying away because they hear someone coming. That someone turns out to be the lovers. For this, the second of their encounters, the orchestra resumes the melody they shared earlier while the two of them converse above it in breathless snatches. Comparing his attempt to kiss Nanetta to a duel, Fenton teases that he has returned to the assault. She pretends to defy him. Nanetta and Fenton are interrupted again, this time by the arrival of the men who are discussing their plan of action against Falstaff. The women re-enter and a complex nine-part ensemble ensues as both groups hatch their respective plots against Falstaff. Everyone sings softly, furtively, but while the men sound angry, the women sound playful as they discuss their strategy. The men sing in 4-4 time, the women in 6-8 time. In other words, the two groups are in rhythmic conflict with one another. Only Fenton remains uninvolved with either group. He comments that something insane is going on, then thinks of his love in short bursts of lyricism that soar high above the others. <laughs> The men leave and the women send quickly off to accomplish her mission. At the end of this act, you'll hear Alice say that Falstaff's belly will puff up and up and up, and the music puffs up, rising and becoming fuller with each phrase, until it bursts, say the women, as the trombones and bassoons noisily descend, in effect musically deflating the puffed-up Falstaff. Then Alice softly quotes the passage in Falstaff's letter in which he said her face would shine, and all the others complete the sentence, trilling on the word immensita and laughing. 
The orchestra imitates their laughter and brings the act to a close with a rollicking reprise of the Merry Wives music that opened this scene. to part one of episode 41 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I hope you'll enjoy part two, which will be coming out tomorrow, July 21st, where we will continue with an exploration of acts two and three of this great work. So you won't have to wait very long, but until then, I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening. (laughs) 